the trials are kind of beyond the point of it. I, one way to think about this is that if you're a victim of a terrible atrocity, you know you can't get justice. You can't bring back the dead. You know, it, it probably helps a bit to see uh, the people responsible suffer. But what drives you really, really crazy is, is the feeling that other people are not seeing or acknowledging or validating your pain and what you've experienced, and the, especially the truth of what you've experienced. Tell me, tell me, tell me what's a life I've been feeling starstruck Seeing human love thrive in this really long dust Guess it's really all love Seven billion of us And I read the headlines Tell me, tell me, tell me what's a life It's part luck, surveillance Corn shuck the conscience Hot sauce, blood diamonds Everybody pitching in for red with silence We already hit a black Hi, I'm Michael And I'm Obasi So... My friend Michael and I have come into adulthood watching our world become more and more polarized. From political polarization, to income inequality, to how we even define what is real, it feels like schism and conflict are everywhere. Like everything is coming apart. It feels like we need some type of meta-solution. Regardless of the issue, like, how do we come back together? What does it look like to make peace? And at the same time, the world hasn't literally fallen apart yet. So people must be making peace on some level. So that's where we want to start. We want to learn who's making peace and how, and how we can apply that to the rest of our world. So join us as we try to find everyday peacemakers and learn what peacemaking means to them. Each episode, we'll learn one principle of peacemaking from our guest. These are featured as a growing tribute to our guests and their wisdom at principlesofpeacemaking.org. Today we hear from Gabe a law professional who tells us about his work seeking truth and reconciliation in the Solomon Islands. Gabe describes the stories he heard on his journey and teaches us the value of witnessing others' suffering, defining a collective truth, and being honest with ourselves, even when it hurts. Today's principle of peacemaking, truth heals. I will start by telling it from my perspective. And if it gets too narcissistic, then you could edit that out more. <laughs> um, but um, basically, I've always been interested in human rights issues and uh, uh, transitional justice issues. And, uh, you know, when I went to law school in the early 2000s, human rights was, it was a lot of excitement about, um, you know, using the courts for human rights, using international law and international uh, justice. Uh, you had the, the International Criminal Tribunal, it was about to be set up and you had uh, some, some other tribunals happening and there was really a sense that you could get like a, like a lot done. So I graduated uh, and um, I worked as a lawyer for a bit and then I went to Cambodia. I'd gone in law school and then I came back and I worked with the Khmer Rouge Tribunal and I got pretty jaded about it. Uh, I found that it wasn't really serving victims well, although they kind of tried to a bit, but um, it was a little tough because it's worth talking about kind of international human rights, uh, you know, kind of law or kind of international criminal law, let's call it. After World War II, you have the Nuremberg trials for the for the Nazis, right? Um, and the thing is, you know, the Germans kept very good records and they were super clear about what they were doing. So it was a very satisfying trial in a lot of ways because it was like Germans on trial. They're like, yes, here's the evidence. Uh, this is where I said I was going to kill all the Jews. Um, yes. And uh, it was very clear cut who was in charge. And so you're able to kind of hold people responsible. But then when it comes to like Cambodia in the 70s under the Khmer Rouge, it's a little tricky because hundreds of thousands of people, possibly over a million people, possibly a quarter of the country were killed. 
but they were not exactly killed a top-down way, and they were not targeted for their ethnicity. They were really targeted more based on uh, class and being urban people, what they called new people. You'd have a lot of cases where um, the, the people in charge were kind of not really running things very well, and they would kind of say, your district has to produce this much rice without kind of specifying how or what consequences. And then people started killing people so that they didn't could, uh, could to take their rice rations and, and send them in or whatever. Now, whose fault is that? Is that genocide? Um, you know, it gets really messy. And I got very involved with the defense side of the tribunal, which isn't wasn't necessarily arguing that the people uh, being put on trial were, were, were good, but it was kind of that this is a lot more actors at fault here, including maybe the United States in a lot of ways, and certainly China and some other foreign actors. And I started to really understand that in some ways, the trials are kind of beyond the point of it. I, one way to think about this is that if you're a victim of a terrible atrocity, you know you can't get justice. You can't bring back the dead. You know, it, it probably helps a bit to see uh, the people responsible suffer. But what drives you really, really crazy is, is the feeling that other people are not seeing or acknowledging or validating your pain and what you've experienced, and the, especially the truth of what you experienced. And that's why, so truth commissions kind of start in Latin America in the 80s and then very uh, famously used in South Africa. You know, and really the point was that you kind of needed uh, truth and reconciliation. So the idea was, first of all, to actually get the truth out. So you give amnesty to people if they will kind of tell the truth and acknowledge what happened. But then you also need the reconciliation with both the perpetrators or the people involved First of all, uh, agreeing and acknowledging that this happened, that this, that they, they were not going to deny that this, they, 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 they did this. They killed people. They hurt people. People suffered because of them. And uh, reconciling. And people think of reconciliation to mean kind of like this kind of namby-pamby, like let's shake hands things. But it should be something very culturally meaningful that really is about kind of coming to terms with one another, really kind of recognizing each other, uh, you know, eye to eye, face to face. If you go back to the Holocaust example, you know, like uh, when I think about after the Holocaust, what's mean, you know, as a Jewish American, what's meaningful to me is that Germans I meet go through a lot of Holocaust education and really have to come to terms with their past and with what happened in their country. That is much more important to me than the fact that decades ago, a few dozen people were put on trial and, and convicted. Um, but, you know, maybe I'd feel differently if I was a victim. Um, but I saw on Wikipedia that there is a truth commission in the Solomon Islands, which I didn't, I did not know much about the Solomon Islands. But the more I went looked into it, it seemed very interesting, and I couldn't find anything more about it. There was no website. There was no. There was like maybe some brief articles in the news. So I ended up just booking a flight and flying over there for a couple of months to go to the Solomon Islands and get involved and kind of see what happened. So I get there, uh, I end up kind of volunteering with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and I wrote a big piece of their final report. Uh, and I did a lot of interviews, both for the Truth Commission, and then also my own kind of reports, to, to my own interviews to kind of write about this. And that's the story I have to tell you, it's about what I kind of found out about this situation. First of all, so real, uh, and like, Certainly with trauma survivors, what we do all the time is like, you know, they will very, very often have revenge fantasies. And part of healing is recognizing that actually this person's suffering isn't going to make your suffering not have happened. And and kind of grieving the fact like you suffered and literally nothing is going to make that not true. 
And there are things you can do to pass it on for future people who will suffer, but that's about as close as we can get. Yeah. Like just thinking about like peacemaking generally, like that as kind of like, you know, a, a potential principle of peacemaking, like that you need to just acknowledge truth. Like you have to share the same understanding of truth. It just seems really hard. Like you were saying, things are just really complicated usually. Um, and like everybody has their own vantage point on a situation. So like, you know, who is really, um, like, the perpetrator of the genocide here? Like, how many people are implicated in this? Um, and even the victim's, like, understanding may need to shift in some way in order to, like, come to, like, a shared understanding of truth. But, of course, it needs to shift in a way that's, like, healing, not in a way that, like, leaves the, the like, truth of their kind of experience out. Um, so I just find that all, like, really interesting. And I don't know how to make that play out well. Which makes me really interested to hear, like, you know, the the story in the Solomon Islands and, like, how they managed to, you know, reckon with those kind of, like, really difficult problems with the Truth, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, so. So the Solomon Islands, uh, for listeners who might not know, um, are a, uh, a, a toll, like a chain of islands, of volcanic islands mostly, um, northeast of Australia, so kind of off the coast of Australia, populated by Melanesian peoples, um, uh, you know, uh, and I, I do want to zoom in, zoom back and tell you this kind of story of what kind of happened in the Solomon Islands, because it's not very well known, at least in our country. So basically... Um, the Solomon Islands were colonized by uh, England, by the British Empire in like the late 1800s, uh, but pretty much left alone as a protectorate. Uh, they didn't really have that much of interest. Um, you know, certainly they, they suffered a bit. Some, so the two main islands are Guadalcanal, which is populated by Guale people, and Malaita, which is populated by Malaitans. And um, especially the Malaitans were often what they called blackbirded, which meant kind of recruited to Australia to work in sugarcane fields as kind of indentured servants. Um, but in general, the, the Somme Islands like, was mostly kind of left alone. And it was like pr pretty peaceful. I mean, um, I don't want to like romanticize it, but it wasn't as, as oppressed as a lot of other colonized places. Then uh, this kind of ideal comes to an end in the 30s when the Somme Islands finds itself um, one of the biggest turning points of World War II. Um, so basically, uh, the Japanese are advancing towards Australia. They take over the Solomon Islands. They oppress the, the, the people quite a lot. And um, they uh, decided to build an airfield in Guadalcanal that they're going to use to invade Australia. Then the U.S. comes over to try to stop them before they can build this airfield, and there ends up being this huge war. Um, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of troops involved, uh, tens of thousands die. The Japanese lose uh, two battleships. The Americans lose two aircraft carriers. There's so much loss there that uh, they still call the waters off of Honiara, which is the capital now, um, uh, Iron Bottom Sound. And uh, basically, the Solomon Islanders, there's so much cargo left over from this war like literally just like buildings and chunks of metal left over that they moved their capital to Haniara where the airfield was. And that's still the airfield that I flew into to get to the Solomon Islands. Um, and they built this capital in Guadalcanal, which is kind of a problem because uh, the people who mostly move into this capital city are Malaitans from that other big island because they're a bit more, um, uh, let's say, aggressive, sophisticated in culture. They had a little more Western interaction. There's a bunch of reasons, but they basically kind of come in to, to populate the city and serve as kind of like the police and, and government, uh, while the Guali people from Guadalcanal are a little bit more rural and introverted culturally and just kind of shy away. Also, there's a bit of a problem because 
the Malayan people pass on their uh, property through the father, and the and the Guala, the Guali people do it through the mother. And so, after a couple of generations, we've got a lot of controversy about who owns what and what's going on. And this all comes to a head in the late 90s uh, when the Malayan people, uh, you know, the Guali people, rise up against the Malayans. And here's where it gets crazy. Um, there's no army here, and there's not really much like no, you know, many, many, many like arms. So the the Guali people dig up the old guns from the Battle of Guadalcanal, and they kind of refurbish them a bit, these old War II guns, and they invade the capital city with their, like, reconstructed old kind of post-apocalyptic guns. And then the Malayan people uh, basically kind of defend themselves with, like, um, mostly with kind of police weapons. But it, so it becomes pretty quickly a standoff uh, between the city of Haniara and the rest of the, of the of Guadalcanal. The government basically kind of collapses, and for a few years, you have what they call the tension. And during the tensions, uh, there's this kind of standoff. Uh, there's not really, uh, like, uh, I think over 100 people died. You know, thousands of people were displaced, but not, uh, obviously, a lot of suffering and some other issues, but not, uh, I, again, it's nothing like Cambodia, like, not that, that uh, not widespread atrocity. But certainly there was an absence of, of peace and, um, uh, you know, and it was, terrible for a lot of people. This all ends in 2003 when um, uh, Australia kind of quietly invades. At the same time as the U.S. is invading uh, Iraq very loudly, Australia kind of quietly does what they call the uh, regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands, Ramsey. Ramsey is uh, also another coalition of the willing between Australia, New Zealand, and a bunch of Pacific Islands. And they basically kind of send this assistance mission, the peacekeeping mission, to kind of hold peace. And when I was went to the Solomon Islands in 2011, it was still basically kind of run by Ramsey. There's a provisional government, but Ramsey was kind of still running the place. Um, and the Australians were trying really hard to do nation building and justice differently than the Americans are doing in Iraq. They were trying really hard to be kind of humble about it and to, you know, defer to like local uh, local people about things. Even still, the Solomon Islanders mostly hated their guts and just wanted them gone. <laughs> and so I could come in as, and people would first perceive me as an Australian and just like, just like, scowl and then when they heard i was american they'd be like oh americans oh my god they would just get so excited so um and this is very interesting and i got to talk to a lot of new zealanders and australians and all kinds of people so i talked to a lot of folks uh about kind of reconstructing the justice sector there right and they're trying to reconstruct the justice sector on uh you know uh british australian kind of lines uh you know and someone's used to be british um and uh, i talked to some of the folks who are kind of running the prison and they said that at first they came in and they treated these prisoners some of whom were prisoners from this war or you know like uh people who had done who were kind of captured in the war or whatever um they started treating them like you know the way that we would treat prisoners uh, um uh you know so they were kind of like yeah they weren't uh, abusing them right but they were they were really exerting their authority and were telling them where to go and what to do and what and, and treating them very very kind of harshly that they you know to make sure there's this, this order that nothing gets out of line and they got a lot of resistance that people really did not appreciate it and what they came to understand was that in the Islands, the view was that if you're a prisoner then that's your role in society that's your fate that's what happened um but you're still equal and you're still have to be acknowledged uh, as, as a person and so you know if you i like if you're a prisoner like you uh they, like the prisoners will actually just do do what they're supposed to do and they will they won't like push the boundaries they won't push the lines unless they feel like they're they're kind of disrespected or treated less than um and a lot of things were kind of like that that it just kind of you started realizing that this kind of western system was imposing strict rules and um uh unnecessary complexity 
on uh, that maybe is more useful if you've got a society of millions of people coming from different places. But in the Salmon Islands, a lot of things could be just done through kind of custom. Um, and that, I don't want to romanticize that. You know, again, I talked to someone trying to start, a local person trying to start a clean energy project who found it super impossible to get anything done. Or, you know, definitely a lot of women uh, suffered a lot of sexual violence. And then, um, you know, and that was another quite another that was to get another thing i want to mention here is that working on the truth commission you might ask like what's the point of this truth commission um ex uh, you know like gathering all this testimony and one of the things that I, one of the great examples i did learn right was that uh, if you have trials a lot of folks in the Salmon Islands were not going to talk about sexual violence. Um, it just wasn't something they would talk about in, in public on, on a witness stand and uh, with their name attached. But if you had, uh, you know, I trained a lot of testimony takers who kind of go, uh, you know, on foot and go knock on the door and talk to someone and take an anonymous statement. And suddenly hundreds of anonymous statements were coming in about all kinds of sexual violence suffered, right? Yeah, that's so interesting. Like just, again, on that like truth theme, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes which is from Nietzsche um, and he's talking about how like he's just like ragging on Kant like as he does because that's his like favorite thing to do um, but he's like Kant is always like you know looking for pure reason um, or like pure like knowledge objective truth but like the problem is that nobody can have objective truth because there is no seeing without an eye like if you see you're seeing from a perspective um, and so the only way that we can even approximate objectivity is to get as many eyes as possible like get voices from as many different like angles as possible um so i, I really like that like as an answer to that question of like how like how do we come to truth um i think it's like you have to be open to hearing other people express their version of the story um and then as many of those when you when you collect a lot of those you get a better answer the other thing i was thinking about as you were just talking is you know, just this kind of Western perspective that we come in with. And it's like, it's not wrong. Like you're saying, like, there's, you know, we don't want to romanticize like the Solomon Islands. It's not that like, we have everything wrong, and they have everything right. But it's that we have a particular perspective. And we come in and like, we treat prisoners how we think prisoners are just supposed to be treated, because we think, well, that's just who prisoners are. But then we just forget that like, our perspective is is always limited, and that somebody else's perspective can always inform it, which I think is is really interesting. So I get there, I land, I end up staying in, in this little rest house that was run by this monastic order. Um, and it was a little odd. There were people walking around kind of kind of barefoot who were just kind of smiling and, uh, you know, very excited about, about you know, Christianity. But uh, but they're all, you know, super nice to me. And, uh, and uh, then I kind of go about kind of meeting people and making connections and find myself, you know, really doing a lot of great interviews. And then I was very surprised to find out eventually that the most impressive peacemakers were actually the people who ran my guest house, who were called the Melanesian Brotherhood, the, the folks who were walking around barefoot. They were the real peacemakers and the heroes of my story. They're an Anglican order that's based in the Salmon Islands. Most of the brothers are Melanesian, although not all. Some, some come from, from elsewhere. And they really... Um, I'm certainly not totally up on my theology, but they, they really try to certainly live up to a certain vision of, of, of Jesus's legacy and, and uh, to what God expects of them. And they were very respected on, on the islands. And when this war started, Brother Harry Garreau, who was the kind of head brother, reached out to the Anglican church and said, um, oh, there's a, a war here. Like, what do we do? I got all these brothers. Uh, what is our role as Christians in this conflict? And uh, the hierarchy told them to retreat 
to to, to Balia, which is basically this retreat that they had kind of up in the hills. And uh, that was kind of their own like, sanctuary, uh, kind of headquarters. And they did this at first, but, but a lot of the brothers felt very torn about this because they felt like they had a role as peacemakers. And they felt like if Jesus were here in this conflict, then Jesus would not be retreating to Tabalia. He would be on the front lines, getting his feet dirty at, at personal risk. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't really care about, uh, about safety because it's just, you know, your, your mortal life on earth or whatever. And so a lot of the brothers really felt like they should actually get involved. And uh, Brother Harry, the leader, um, was supportive of this. He definitely felt so. He kind of disobeyed the hierarchy and the Melanesian Brotherhood inserted themselves into this conflict at great personal risk. And um, one of the main ways they did this was that the brothers would literally walk around barefoot and they would go to like the front lines of these standoffs and they would just walk barefoot towards the combatants and ask them to kneel and to pray with them and then to give up their guns. And this worked quite well. And actually a lot of Folks uh, were very moved and gave up their their guns and stopped uh, fighting because ultimately this all was kind of this tempest in a teapot. I mean, what were people really fighting over? Was this really the best way? And it was tied together with cultural ideas about conflict and about how to you know how to resolve. There were ways, uh, organic ways in the culture of dealing with these conflicts that had kind of spun a bit out of control. So there were certain ways in which everyone kind of could just step back and say, wait a minute, we don't need to shoot each other. We don't actually need these these guns. And uh, there was also real beliefs about the power of the brotherhood. People really believed that the brothers were bulletproof, that God was protecting them, and that if God's messenger here on earth is telling you to lay down your arms and pray, um, then it's not a time to start to start arguing or fighting or whatever. And this worked really well, and I really think that they were a tremendous force for peace. But there is another part of this story, which is that Early on in the conflict, there was a guy named Harold Keke, who was one of the warlords, a Gwale, so like on the Guadalcanal, a Gwale warlord, who was fighting. He actually got like kind of shot in the head and he survived and he went a little crazy, or maybe he was always crazy. This always gets kind of complicated. But um, it became a bit of a heart of darkness scenario where he moved to the other side of, of, of Guadalcanal. So Guadalcanal is this big island and there's really only a road on one side and uh, the other side is, is roadless. And to get, it would take a four day trek through the jungle to get to the other side of the island. And, and the other side is called the Weather Coast because it's actually really hard to even land a ship there. So he moved to the Weather Coast and he kind of created his own little fiefdom that was out of control. And literally the government forces kept trying to, or even Ramsey kept trying to go over there to dislodge him, but uh, no one could do it because it was kind of hard to land folks there. It was really dangerous. So he was kind of running his own operation out there. Um, and a bunch of the Melanesian brothers felt like they could do something about this. And brother Harry, the head brother, was really torn over what to do about this because this seemed very dangerous and a uh, situation more out of control. But ultimately he kind of gave his blessing to this. And one of the brothers went over to the weather coast to try to talk some sense to Harold Keke. And uh, Keke immediately kind of accused him of being uh, a spy and uh, tortured him to death. And this brother was not heard from. So then three other brothers, actually six other brothers went there and they were all uh, killed as well. So first of all, this shatters the myth of the bulletproof brothers. So irreparable harm to the brotherhood. Then they're a tight-knit group. Uh, they, they, a lot of kind of um, questions about whether, like, why, why this is, was this a good idea or not. Um, you know, eventually Harold Keke is captured, put on trial, put in jail. Um, 
to me, Brother Harry, who I talked to, is a super humble man, one of the most impressive people I've ever met, one of the most thoughtful and humble and, uh, and caring people, empath empathic people I ever talked to. And yet he was very racked with guilt about this whole experience. To me, he was a hero of this whole conflict. He, his actions to me saved many, many lives and relieved much suffering. But of course, he's preoccupied by the fact that he contributed to the death of seven of his good friends and brothers who were relying on him for guidance. And, uh, and as a religious person, he had a lot of conflict about this, a lot of internal conflict about whether uh, was he truly listening to God? Was he doing what the godly thing to do was? Or was he uh, letting his kind of ego get in the way? Or you know, what was, were they really acting smartly or not? Like what could he have done about this? And so, yeah, I mean, he could talk about it. He's obviously still in the order. He's, uh, I, I think he still has a lot of pride in what he did. But it's really interesting to note that, you know, I talked to a lot of folks with really big egos, a lot of these warlords who talk on and on about how they, what they did was standing up for their people and they're, they're not ashamed of what happened or they'll justify a lot of self-justification uh, from the warlords, from the Australians, from the, the UN folks from every, every party involved is very self-justifying. And yet I will note that, that Brother Harry um, was more kind of racked by guilt. And I think he actually uh, feels like he kind of suffers a lot from, from what happened. And that to me, that was kind of an interesting lesson about peacemaking and about the toll of peacemaking and the experience of being a peacemaker. The main thing that comes to my head is just this idea at the end of justification versus kind of a personal truth or maybe a, a religious truth of like staying true to that. I don't know if you've ever encountered the Arbinger Institute. I had never. And then I read a book by them and they talk about this idea of it's kind of like supposed to be a psychology of peacemaking. And they talk about this idea of self-betrayal which is this kind of when you feel you should have done something for someone and you don't, you betray yourself because you're not acting in accordance with your own values. And most people respond to that by justifying it. And usually they justify it by kind of dehumanizing the person they didn't help. And so I'm just having this reaction of a like, I, I do have a lot of respect for this brother. So many psychologists or like people that I know would be like, well, don't feel bad. Like <laughs> you did so much good. Like, I don't know that feeling bad is necessarily not a feeling of being at peace also in some ways. Feeling that guilt could be a way of feeling love and kind of not betraying himself to say like, like, let me justify this in the scheme of the greater war and something. And so I just have a lot of respect for that. Yeah, I will note that um, I can send you pictures of uh, the, the graves of the seven brothers who died are, are given kind of prominent placement in, in this retreat in, in, uh, in, in Tavalia. And, um, and they're very, very honored, right, and respected. And so they really are kind of part of the brotherhood in a way. So I think you're right that, uh, that his guilt was motivated by by love and by staying it's a way to kind of in some ways stay in touch with with his lost brothers yeah i think that is really interesting because you want to say or I, I guess i am you know kind of tempted to say well maybe he should be more like the warlords who just like you know have decided that they're going to positively integrate this into their like self-image and say i'm a great guy 
who did great things and the world around me like didn't respond in the ways that it should have or whatever. But I, I guess I, I think people are more complicated than that maybe. Um, and that like maybe that process itself is, is hard um, on people. Like I think like going back to the truth thing, it's clear that like brother Harry is trying to tell himself the truth. Whereas these other people are maybe trying to tell themselves lies um, in order to like make, make everything work for them. And I, I wonder, I wonder if that works out better for him, but I'm also like, I, I don't know that peacemaking doesn't, doesn't sometimes end in just like suffering. You know, there was harm that was done and you can't um, erase the suffering or you can't like, you know, do peacemaking so well that like now there is no more pain involved in order to bring so much like good and peace to the world. He did have to like, go through things that are maybe going to like weigh on him permanently. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And uh, if you're more truthful, then at least future generations can kind of learn from the lessons and can grow up in a world that makes more sense to them. Uh, again, when I compare that to like Cambodia, where I just met all these young people, you people younger than me who just, were grew up, growing up in this tra- traumatized world and did not understand why their country was so different, why their upbringing was so different than their neighbors in Thailand or Vietnam or, you know, Vietnam had a war too. Like why, why, why is there so much suffering and just weird tension and darkness in Cambodia? Um, but then, yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's true. Like maybe if we're more like brother Harry, even if we have to shoulder some more of that burden, it, it uh, helps that those we talk to and those uh, we pass our lessons on to don't have to deal with uh, with our kind of self-lying or whatever yeah that's a really like really good point and i think that it's true also that like brother harry is probably dealing with less pain and suffering now than he would have been dealing with if he had not you know participated in this peacemaking activity that like if the standoff was still going on so there is some sacrifice but it's a sacrifice that like produces so much good that like yes that like the future generations get to live in and i think also hopefully you get to live in it too, even if there are scars from the harm that you had to, to resolve. Tell me, tell me, tell me what's a life? I've been feeling starstruck, seeing human love thrive in this really long dusk. Guess it's really our love, seven billion of us, and I read the headlines. Tell me, tell me, tell me what's a life? It's potlucks of violence, corn shucked of conscience, hot sauce, blood diamonds. Everybody pitching in forks red with silence. We already ate up that cone bread of kindness. Or is something in between We got stories in our stories No one's stories what it seems As we stumble, as we fall We watch each other and we scream If our weaknesses are glory It's more glory to be seen This has been the Peacemakers Podcast Produced and hosted by me, Obasi Shaw And my co-host, Michael O'Brien The intro and outro song, What's a Life Is by me and produced by Eerie Skies The interludes are produced by Gabe Gladstein Of the pop duo, Running On Everything If you liked this episode and want to reflect more, come visit our website at principlesofpeacemaking.org, where you can find more of our content and information on how to support us. Our guest today was Gabe Kiris. Thanks, Gabe. And thank you for listening. Now go and make peace.